Hey everybody, this is Steve Carroll, and this is the Invasive Podcast. I know it's been forever since we have published an episode, and today I hope to get back on the horse and start publishing more consistently in the near future. I'll aim for one episode a month, as that will be much easier to accomplish than planning on doing the show more frequently but less consistently. As a preview, I have a Chest Pain 2.0 podcast in the works that I hope to publish in April. I can't believe that it's been almost eight years since the original Chest Pain podcast was published, and so much has changed in the workup and management of chest pain that I cringe when I look back on that old episode. So keep a lookout for that sometime in April. Today's episode focuses on neonatal resuscitation in the ED. Dr. Dan McCollum and Dr. Jessica Gankar from Augusta University interviewed Dr. Azif Safarula. Azif is an assistant professor of neonatology at Augusta University, so he has a fantastic perspective on how to resuscitate newborns. These can be terrifying resuscitations to run the ED, so this is a very important topic for us to know. We'll be partnering with Augusta University in the future to publish some more pediatrics content, so be on the lookout for that. So let's get right to it. Here's Neonatal Resuscitation by Dr. Azif Safarula, interviewed by Dr. Dan McCollum and Dr. Jessica Gankar. Hey, this is Dan McCollum over at Augusta University's Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm joined here by a couple of colleagues from the Pediatrics Department. We're here to talk about some resuscitation techniques in little ones. Hello, everyone. My name is Jessica Gankart, and I'm a second-year pediatric resident at the Children's Hospital of Georgia at Augusta University. And I'd like to welcome everyone, along with Dr. McCollum, to the EM Basic Pediatrics Podcast. First, I'd like to give a warm thanks to Steve Carroll for inviting us to build on the many years of amazing content produced by EM Basic. It's really an amazing achievement and something we plan to build on in the incoming years. Obviously, we're passionate about pediatrics and our goal is to equip EM Basic listeners with high yield tools that they can use to care for the pediatric patients they encounter. Today, our guest speaker is Dr. Azif Safarula, an assistant professor of neonatology, also at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Dr. Safula, could you take a second to let our listeners know your background and touch on what your passions are? Sure. Thank you, uh, first of all, uh, for inviting me uh, for this podcast. Um, uh, and uh, a little bit about myself. Um, I finished fellowship training in around 2014, and, and then I've been at Augusta University since then, so probably around four years. Um, caring for extremely young children and especially premature children is something a general emergency department is not typically prepared for. And when they present an extremist, it can certainly be a stressful situation for everyone involved. Definitely. That's why you need your friendly neighborhood NEO. Plus, educating our EMS staff and ER personnel on basics of NRP uh, is something that I uh, think is extremely key because there are certain uh, differences between NRP versus PALS and ACLS. Um, so, Asif, could you let us know uh, what exactly is NRP? NRP stands for Neonatal Resuscitation Program. So just like PAL is pediatric, uh, ACLS is for adults, NRP is specifically geared towards neonates. And we'll, we'll talk about uh, the nuances of uh, each aspect of NRP as we go ahead. Speaking about that, a new, uh, one good way to get started would be to start with a scenario. Um, so let's say you're working in the ED in the middle of the night when you get a call from an imminent delivery en route to you. The EMS crew says the mother has little or no prenatal care and is unsure of how far along she is. Pretty scary, right? Yes, this is fairly intense since we did not know what we're going to get. Typically, initial questions what we need to ask in this scenario are, uh, is there one baby or multiple babies? Uh, is the baby term or preterm? Any pearls of maternal history that they can offer? 
and are the membranes ruptured or not? And if so, what is the nature of fluids are? Is it clear? Is it bloody? Is it meconium stained? Meconium just stands for baby poop. Uh, the answers to these initial questions should give the team an idea of how to prepare for an impending delivery. Building off of that, is there any advice you can give our listeners on other things to do to get prepared for a situation? Definitely. This is going to be a multidisciplinary team approach. We basically have two sets of patients in this scenario, the mother and the baby. Therefore, we need the OB team, the NICU team, and obviously the ER team, who is already there. In terms of the baby, we will have to be prepared as though the patient is going to be crashing. In neonatal resuscitation, ventilation is key. Uh, compared to PALS or ACLS, this is still one of those resuscitations where it still follows that airway breathing circulation sequence. Uh, we'll go a little bit over the equipment that's needed. And you know, just to simplify things, you know, I'm a pretty simple guy. I like to like organize things in a kind of just boxes. So I divide them into categories. So just starting off with basics, we need a warmer to maintain temperature, which ideally should be turned on. We have need warm towels, a hat for the head, a neo wrap, which is basically a fancy term for a serene wrap, and uh, a trans warmer, which is basically a portable warm warming device. For airway, we need a bulb syringe to clear secretions. We need a suction catheter, which is either 8 or 10 French, again, to clear secretions, which should be ideally set for 80 to 100 millimeter negative pressure. For ventilation, we need a positive pressure device that could be either an ambu bag or a T-piece resuscitator, as per your institution, an appropriately sized mask that will cover the nose and the mouth of the baby, oxygen with a blender, preferably, and an 8 French feeding tube, which we insert to decompress the belly. For breathing, uh, we need an ET tube, which is appropriately sized for a baby, um, a blade that is appropriately sized, CO2 detector, pulse ox, which we'll apply on the right upper extremity to detect preductal saturations and EKG leads. And for circulation, we need umbilical venous catheter plus supplies to insert it like a cord tie, betadine, scalpel, forceps, along with some of the meds to be used like epinephrine and normal saline. Just to clarify, if we're not sure the size of the baby before they get here, what ET tube as well as blade would you have ready? Very good question. In that scenario, we should uh, take the zero blade, which is your kind of one size fits all kind of uh, blade, the Miller zero blade. The 3OET tube would be the one to choose. Always in those scenarios, keep one size smaller in hand so that in case the baby turns out to be super small, you always have that available. It's okay to have a smaller ET tube. You may not be able to fit a bigger ET tube or, or fit a bigger blade in a baby who's super small. So that seems like a good point. When in doubt, go for the small size, and we can always upscale it if we realize that ET tube should be enlarged. Correct. Okay. So now that we have all this stuff prepared, any other suggestions you have for us? Definitely, Jessica. Uh, I think as you said uh, correctly, it is very important to be prepared. If the EMTs can tell you an estimated gestation lead using the mother's um, knowledge of her LMP, her last menstrual period, or the fundal height, it would be helpful. But if not, you just have to be fully ready to go. Have your team ready and explaining roles is extremely important to simplify a complex code. The scientific term for it is called pre-resuscitation briefing. If you're into sports, it's like a pre-game strategy plan. You know, assign your roles, uh, assign the game plan, uh, their different roles would include the leader of the code or the person who will manage the airway, a respiratory therapist to assist, 
a person to auscultate for both the heart rate as well as breath sounds, a person who will compress the chest if need be, who would place lines, meaning the umbilical line, a person to draw meds, which would be mainly your epinephrine, normal saline, and dextrose if needed, and obviously a recorder. The recorder in these roles seems a minor role, but it is very, very important because in a code, you may feel uh, like the seconds are moving super slow, but in reality, things are moving in a rapid pace. So this is actually very similar to a lot of our trauma resuscitations where long before the patient gets there, we know exactly who's doing what. And that's what leads to a good team that will actually be able to pull together when it hits the fan. And um, just going back to what Dr. McCullum said, that term is called closed loop communication. As the code is going on, this is a very, very good technique to avoid errors during the code because it's always possible for errors to happen and that's something I think we should always be prepared for and expect to happen. So if your leader is not addressing something or may have missed something, it's always the job of the team to actually reiterate that or point that out. It could be a, a dose of a medicine which is 10 times off or 10 times smaller or something that we've clearly missed. It's not to point any fingers, but because eventually it's about the patient. It's about what we need to do in that moment to save this patient, and that's what close loop communication does. So instead of saying, someone start an IV, you could say, Michael, please start an IV. Exactly. And then Michael would call back, starting an IV here. Or in this case, it would likely be, you know, Jessica, please start a umbilical line. Exactly. All right, so now that everyone's roles are assigned, let's go back into the scenario. Um, we're waiting in the resuscitation bay and we see the EMS crew running down the hall. They tell you the baby was delivered via spontaneous vaginal delivery less than a minute ago. They hand the newborn to the waiting staff and in your initial assessment, you know the chi child to be limp, gray, and with no respiratory effort. Dr. Safarula, how would you strategize your resuscitation efforts with this patient? And how may this resuscitation be different from that of an older pediatric patient or adult? So when a baby is born, per NRP guidelines, things that you have to initially ask are, is the baby term or preterm or appears term or preterm? The tone of the baby, is that a flexor tone or is an extensor tone? And the baby's respiratory effort. So in this particular scenario, from what you just described, Jessica, this constitutes what is called a non-vigorous baby. The baby is flaccid, not moving and not crying or having any respiratory effort. How, it, how NRP differs itself from PALS or ACLS is that, like as we previously mentioned, it's still that airway breathing circulation sequence. Ventilation is key, and your heart rate is the objective measure of your success of resuscitation. So the first, uh, we address the basic steps, so place, them, place the baby under a warmer, suction, clear the airway, first the mouth and then the nose, intubate the patient in this particular scenario where it looks like the baby has zero effort in breathing and it looks like the kid's very depressed and we would start positive pressure ventilation. Uh, we can start bagging until uh, the ET tube is ready so, so as to pre-oxygenate, but in this particular scenario, this kid would straight away get intubated. Place a pulse ox on the right upper extremity uh, to monitor pre-decal saturations and an OG to decompress the belly. The assumption is that all this will happen within 30 seconds period and uh, we check the heart rate at this point. The goal is to be at above 100 beats per minute. If the heart rate is less than 100 but more than 60 beats per minute, we would continue positive pressure ventilation at a rate of 40 to 60 breaths per minute. If it is less than 60 beats per minute, we will turn the FiO2 up to 100% and then start chest compressions. 
assuming that in this case from your description uh, this kid is very depressed and the heart rate is most likely less than 60 and the kid's not been breathing so likelihood would be that this kid will get chest compressions in this scenario so just to remind some folks that might not be used to neonatal resuscitation we're actually doing chest compressions if the heart rate is less than 60 because that's inadequate which is a good bit different than what we'll do in adults correct correct and it's also very important that we're looking at the right upper extremity where we're putting the pulse socks not anywhere else, which would totally be acceptable in, in an older patient. Exactly. And um, to address why that is, it has to do with fetal circulation. So when they're in utero, that duct is still open and is responsible for circulation since our lungs are not working. And when the kid is born, that connection is still open and it's just in transition. So there still could be some mixing of deoxygenated blood. And so if you put it in any other extremity, it could be technically a little lower than what it truly is. And also, our right upper extremity is a reflection of what the brain is seeing because it's originating from the brachiocephalic, which also supplies the brain, the right common carotid. Now, when I'm intubating adults, I'm usually looking for a pulse ox at 95 or 100%. Should I be expecting that in this baby? It's a very good question. We have to remember the baby is in a hypoxic state uh, and our stats are anywhere between 30 to 70%. And so it would be unnatural to expect a baby to come out and sat 95% immediately. And so um, that's why a few years ago, around I think 2009, 2010, the NRP actually updated their guidelines and mentioned that at zero minutes, zero to one minute, 60% is normal. And it will take around 10 minutes of life to actually hit normal 90 to 95% sat. Coming back to what we were talking about, Dr. McCullum brought up a very good point when he talked about the intubation aspect and chest compression aspect. It is extremely important to ventilate a baby before jumping to chest compressions. I have seen this over and over again where people are overzealous about jumping to compressions without addressing the ventilation aspect. If you do not ventilate a baby properly, you can compress all you want. You are not delivering oxygenated blood to the rest of the body. So if you're not ventilating, that chest compression is not doing anything for you. Good point. Um, so as horrible as this may sound, are there any situations where you wouldn't even initiate resuscitation? That is a interesting and a complex question to answer in one go. It Again, it depends on situation to situation. It depends on the gestational age, one, uh, the time that the baby has been out and the current state. If below the age of viability, um, I would advise stop. If um, we have provided 10 minutes of effective cardiorespiratory resuscitation, per current NRP guidelines, it is suggested, highly suggested that we stop. Effective cardiorespiratory resuscitation basically means that you have intubated and you have provided chest compressions along with epinephrine. So this would be around three doses of epinephrine by the end of those 10 minutes. But again, I do want to underline that this is a complex decision. It should not be on any one person to make this decision. You should always discuss with your team. And if trainees are involved, this should not be a decision that they make. They should always consult your attending and make that decision. This is Dan McCollum, and I just want to interject for a moment to have a quick review before we discuss things such as compressions and medications. First off, ventilation is key for neonates. Unlike with adult patients where we often put off things such as intubation and focus more on things like early defibrillation or good chest compressions, 
the first and foremost thing that you want to do is make sure that the baby is properly being ventilated. So right after a baby is delivered, you're going to dry and stimulate the baby. Follow this up by opening up the airway and suction if the baby is not vigorous. Focus on ventilation and don't worry so much about things such as compressions or drugs. You can initially start with use of bag valve mask on a neonate that's not doing well, but quickly progress to intubation, especially if the patient is apneic. Your cutoff to determine what your goals for resuscitation are going to be is mostly the heart rate and not a pulse ox, as the baby is expected to be hypoxic for the first several minutes of life after delivery. And you're going to continue to do positive pressure ventilations for any heart rate below 100. So keep in mind, your pulse ox, unlike with your adult patients, is not going to be useful to figure out whether or not you're properly ventilating. It's going to be much more focused on the heart rate. And with that, we resume our discussion on how to properly manage this child. So let's delve back into the neonatal airway, since it is so different from the pediatric and adult airways. Can you describe some of the differences and discuss the steps you would take for a successful innovation? Sure. Um, baby airways are definitely much shorter. They're more delicate, very anterior compared to older kids or adults, and they're definitely no teeth. Uh, we use the Miller blade and not the Macintosh blade, just because it's straight and um, not curved. Um, and uh, there are three different sizes of blades that we use. The double zero blade for 25 weeks or less, the zero blade for 26 to 34 weeks, and the size one blade for 35 weeks and above. The NRP also mentioned another weight-based criteria. So for less than 1,000 grams, you can use the double zero. For 1,000 to 2,000 grams, you can use the zero blade. And more than 2,000, you can use the one blade. But sometimes it is challenging to guesstimate a baby's weight if you're not used to seeing babies. The ET tube size-wise, uh, there's a uh, 2.5 size tube, 3.0 and 3.5, which we use in this institution for babies. And that, again, depends on the gestational age. So for babies who are ranging from 23 weeks all the way to 29 weeks, we'll use the 2.5 ET tube. The 3.0 ET tube would be for 30 weeks to 34 weeks, and then 3.5 ET tube for 35 weeks and above. In terms of what we can do to improve our chance of success, positioning the baby in that sniffing position, which is kind of in between the hyperflexed and hyperextended position, the other part is the depth of insertion, which often is a problem because we often end up inserting it too deep. Two methods are described. One is the uh, weight plus six method, which again, it is tricky just because if you're not used to seeing babies, it's hard. But the other method that NRP recommends is the nasal septum to ear tragus plus one centimeter method, uh, which is fairly accurate. But eventually you have to auscultate and see how uh, you the, the breath sound sound. Uh, if it's louder on the right, pull it back until you get equal breath sounds bilaterally. All right, so moving back towards the scenario, um, now that our airway is secure, um, what are the steps in the management of this patient? All right. Once airway is established, and note, for an intubation attempt, we should roughly take around 30 seconds because any more than that, you're actually adversely affecting this baby. So this baby will start rating, becoming more hypoxic, and so if, you're if you feel you're going to take more time, come back, bag the baby up, try again. And as mentioned before, the next steps are breathing and circulation. Heart rate is the objective measure uh, that we used for uh, determining the success or not success of, uh, non-success of our 
resuscitative effort, ausculty to ensure our breath sounds are equal bilaterally, and whether the ET tube needs to be adjusted or not. In case, if we are still doing the mask, bag and mask ventilation and we're not achieving good ventilatory effort, we can try that acronym called Mr. SOPA, which is basically mask readjustment, repositioning the mouth, suctioning, opening the mouth, increasing the pressure, and the last step is alternate airway, which is intubate. Okay, and then after we've gotten some kind of airway, breathing, circulation pattern going, um, when do you consider resuscitation drugs or fluids, and is there a preferred route of access for these types of patients? Very good question. So once we address the airway and breathing part of it, and if you're engaged in chest compression, so the moment chest compressions start, that should be the indicator to the rest of the team that you need to get your umbilical venous catheter prepared and epinephrine prepared. And that would be, umbilical venous catheter would be the easiest route to access uh, this baby instead of trying to put a peripheral IV. In case of a compromise, maybe it would be very, very hard to place a peripheral IV in this scenario. And uh, typical steps to do that would be, you know, this is a clean procedure, not a sterile procedure. So apply a cord tie to the base of the cord, apply some betadine, cut off the cord, um, leaving around five centimeter of stump to help you place the umbilical catheter. Once you do that, um, use a um, forceps uh, and um, uh, to locate the umbilical vein. That will be the opening that is most open compared to the other two umbilical arteries. We prime the umbilical line and we insert it just till we get blood return. That's important. That typically uh, translates around four to five centimeters. So I know in NRP, they also talk about using maybe the ET tube for epinephrine. And um, what about that old mnemonic lean for drugs that can be given down the ET tube? Do you think this is an effective way to also deliver epinephrine? The one thing I did not mention in the prior question was um, about epinephrine. So um, the concentration of epinephrine that we use is 1 to 10,000, just like in PAL. The dose of medicine is smaller in the IV route versus the ET tube route. Uh, it is around 0.1 to 0.3 ml per kilo in the IV route and 0.5 to 1 ml per kilo in the ET tube route. So coming back to your question, we no longer provide a barrage of medications for the ET tube. Epinephrine is really the only medicine. And even in that case, it's just a bridge to get to the IV route. We typically say there should be three to five minutes between epi doses, but we refer to IV doses. The, uh, the ET tube dose is not counted in that because we just don't know how much the medicine is absorbed. And so for me, I'm a simple guy, right? So I just remember 0.1 and 1 So uh, the, for dosing. And always remember, don't be super astute and tell them what milligram per kilo you want. That is not the place where you store your uh, astuteness. The nurse will not be able to draw that in a quick amount of time. So if you tell them this many cc's per kilo, they will be able to draw that in a quick manner. So in older kids, I've often been taught that if you're struggling to get access, we should use an IO or intraosseous device. Would you recommend it for newborns? The smaller the baby, the harder it is to fit in. Uh, so if it is a premature baby, the risk that you run is you could actually pierce yourself uh, trying to put that IO in. I think given it is a newborn baby and you have a cord available, that would be probably your easiest route of putting an IV in or getting vascular access. Okay, so let's say that we have a battle-hardened ex-NICU nurse by your side during the in the scenario. 
um, and she quickly places the UVC. How often would you push the epi? And also, what's, can you describe what the coordination of CPR, PPV, and the epi doses would be? Wow, that's a great nurse to have who could <laughs> put a UVC that quickly. So talking about the coordination, that's an important distinction between NRP and PALS. Uh, so this is still one of the resuscitation protocols where there is a coordination between chest compressions and breath. So we give three compressions to one breath every two seconds. And for those individuals who are like very astute, uh, the reason for that is in animal studies, it was shown that doing a three to one ratio actually shortened the time of spontaneous circulation compared to the 15 to two, like in PALS. So we're really targeting 90 compressions per minute. And the epinephrine dose, the interval between IV doses of epinephrine are three to five minutes. We need to monitor the heart rate every 60 seconds. And this is a difference from the rest of the resuscitation. Until you start chest compressions, the interval is every 30 seconds. Once you start chest compressions, that extends to 60 seconds. And the reason for that is you don't want to stop all the hemodynamic advantage that you have generated by doing a chest compression too quick by shortening the duration of compressions. In terms of where to stand once the kid, when we start compression, so if the kid is intubated and if we're engaging in compressions, current NRP states that the person who's controlling airway can move to the side, the compressor moves to the head end of the bed, the intent being to give more space to the person who's going to insert the umbilical venous catheter. And the, just to kind of talk to you about like how we time um, the chest compressions and uh, breaths. So, it's more, so the compressions are like one and two and three and breathe. One and two and three and breathe in that scenario. So in most adults that I intubate, I immediately put them on very high oxygen, like 100% FiO2 until I'm done with my resuscitation. Is that a good idea here? That's the difference between babies and you know, pediatric or adult patients that they're already in a state of hypoxia in utero. So they're fairly resilient to being hypoxic and we don't therefore need to jump the gun and do 100%. And studies actually have shown that actually using higher oxygen can do more harm to babies than benefit. For premature babies, it does raise the risk of retinopathy of prematurity, free radical injury, chronic lung disease. For term babies, it was shown that resuscitation with 21% is just as effective as doing at a higher oxygen concentrations, and there's a reduced mortality with 21%. So that's where that comes from. And around about 2009, 2010, that's when NRP came up with that guideline where they went by minute by minute. And so what I remember is 60% in one minute, 90 to 95 at 10 minutes, so everything else is in between. So going back to the scenario, um, we're a bit further into the resuscitation efforts. Um, we've been going at it for about 12 minutes, but all of a sudden we got return of spontaneous circulation. The RT is getting the patient settled on the ventilator, and you're finally able to give an update to the mom. She tells you that she's about 26 weeks pregnant, and prior to delivering, hadn't felt the baby move for about 24 hours. Um, she came to the ER because of a sudden gush of large amount of blood. So at this point, we'd be considering an abruption. Can you elaborate a bit on the post-resuscitation care of the typical neonate and anything particular about this particular situation? It should not change our management in the immediate sense because, as we mentioned before, it's airway breathing circulation. So if you're intubated, you're providing adequate oxygen. If you have achieved spontaneous circulation, your heart rate is being maintained. 
that should be all you need to achieve before transferring to the NICU where you can do more testing. And if you need to transfuse, you can do that. The only segue from that I would kind of mention would be if during the resuscitation you notice evidence of core perfusion, like you know prolonged cap refill, trity pulses, there is an option where you can give a 10 cc per kilo normal saline bolus through that umbilical venous, venous catheter. But apart from that, the other efforts would be securing that ET tube. You do not want to lose that airway during transport. Securing the UVC, you do not want that baby to bleed out by the time you reach the unit. Wrapping the baby in adequate warm blankets and using that transformer, that portable warming device that I mentioned before. And then once in the NICU, they can decide about whether to start antibiotics or not. So just to summarize a little bit then, to make sure I'm seeing some of the differences between adult resuscitations I'm used to, it sounds like there's a huge emphasis on ventilations, where that is far and away the number one thing we need to do, focusing less on things like chest compressions, and then way down on the list, drugs, as something that's going to fix this. And then organizing your team. So it sounds like you've got a very small patient in front of you, a lot of providers around there. So clearly identifying the roles before you get there, who's going to do the line, who's going to get the airway, who's recording, etc and then coordinating by calling for help. So if you have the ability to have a neonatologist or a pediatrician to come assist in the resuscitation, then calling them early so that they're there to assist. Exactly. So the pre-scenario briefing in terms of role assignment, like you mentioned, and then ventilation, ventilation, ventilation. That is the key. Very, very small subset of patients will need chest compressions and medications. You should be able to bag a baby up you should be able to ventilate a baby appropriately, unless there is some you know, airway anomaly or something, but you should be able to uh, ventilate a baby. The other aspect of a neonatal resuscitation, or any resuscitation, I think, is debriefing. At the end of the scenario, irrespective of the outcome, we should always go back to what went well, what, what can be improved, and what should we continue doing. And uh, because this can happen the, the next day and the next day. And so the goal should be to improve every subsequent scenario. And this is the only way you can do it by debriefing. Well, I can't thank y'all enough for coming to speak with us. Um, this is perhaps the scariest possible patient scenario that you can see. And so it's really helpful to have y'all provide some insight about how to best take care of these sick little babies. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.